Radio Boise, in collaboration with The Modern Hotel, presents Campfire Stories, readings by notable local authors recorded live from the patio at The Modern Hotel in downtown Boise. Anyway, thanks so much for showing up for the second, um, second go-around for the Campfire Stories series here at The Modern, and it was awesome the first time around and looks like it's gonna be fantastic this time. We have Carrie Webster, a poet, who is going to be reading first, and then Nicole Cullen, a fiction writer, who's gonna be reading after a break, and uh, it should be a fine, fine night. Um, obviously, as a reading, many of you folks have been to these things before, but, you know, being respectful, being quiet during the reading, there'll be servers coming in and out, they'll, you know, take good care of you, so tip them and treat them well too, but just, you know, we'll try to keep it down, and hopefully the sound is good enough, and. Everybody can hear all the things that uh, these great writers have to, have to offer us. Uh, my name is Christian Wynn, by the way, and I've kind of helped curate this event or get the, the readers involved. And it's really awesome that uh, Polly and Michael and Elizabeth from The Modern and Remy um, have been super supportive of this element of our arts community in town, the, the writers. Um, I know you guys do a lot of music stuff here and are doing, um, you know, every year the modern art and the Opera Idaho is gonna be here soon to do an event, but I really appreciate that and I know all the writers in town definitely have been uh, happy that this is going on. So I just wanna say thanks to them and then Radio Boise's here, by the way, over here. They'll be recording this and putting it up on their website where they actually have at Boise, Boise Radio, excuse me, Radio Boise, Dot org. The last event that we did in June is actually up there already for your listening pleasure. So you can go there and, and find that. And they're actually they're planning to do an entire show that is, I think, half an hour to an hour based on what we do here at the Modern now. So and it's every second Monday of the month. Um, if you guys can make it back next month, that'd be awesome. We'll have this guy named John Rember and this woman right here, Laura Ro Laura Rogar. Poet, extraordinaire, works for the cabin, who's also super supportive of all this stuff and Story Fort, and I don't know, we have a pretty good community here in town, so. Um, yeah, I think that's about all I wanted to say right now, but maybe I'll, I'll mention this too. Rediscovered Books is here, of course. So you see these books, and that's Erin over there waving. She has uh, copies of Carrie's two books that I'll talk about just for a moment in a second here, and then copies of the Idaho Review from last year and from this, uh, this coming year. There it is. Last year's issue includes uh, Nicole Cullen's story that she's going to read tonight. Um, and so you can purchase those. We have Al Heathcock's book over there. We have Tony Doerr's book. We have our books. I don't know. We have at least one of Tony's. But um, Brady Udall, Jason Sinclair. Whoa, he's the guy who's in Blue, Blue Man Group who writes microfiction, who's going to be at your store on Thursday. So go check that out, and, you know, you say it's good. And I'll trust you on that for sure. And John Rember's books are over there, and Diane Raptosh's books are over there, who's a fantastic local poet, too. So, um, yeah, well, let's bring up Carrie here in a second. I just want to say that she is, you know, the author of Grand in Arsenal, which is with Iowa Press from 2012, and We Do Not Eat Our Hearts Alone, which is out of Georgia Press, um, 2005. She's the recipient of the Whiting Award, which is huge. She's taught the MFA, you know, the MFA workshops at Washington University, St. Louis, and also Boise State this last year. Uh, she writes fantastic poetry that blends, in my mind, sort of really high language with really kind of low, down in the, down in the street level, sort of like gritty stuff. And it just really appeals to my sensibility for sure. And I hope you guys take it all in and, and enjoy her work. So, Carrie, come on up. everybody for coming out on this very hot night to hear us read. Oh, there are four bottles of water under here. I could have two bottles of water before the reading's over. Um, only in this town could I give a reading um, and have in the audience my graduate students, um, woo, my boss, woo, 
Um, a friend I've known for 20 years, my cousin, and ladies and gentlemen, my high school librarian, Mr. Al Blake. Yeah! And Mr. Blank, um, every week would run a poetry workshop after school. And that is the only time in K through 12 when I was exposed to contemporary poetry. So that's how cool he is. Um, I'm going to read a mix of, of uh, new stuff and then stuff from Grand and Arsenal, which is my second book. Can you hear me in the back? Yeah, excellent, okay. This is a little poem called June. June. I want to abide where rivers flood and large men stick to my skin. I sleep with monsters and June's been quite the manticore, whoring myself out in rough trade for words, losing sleep and then sleep troubled, sure. I come back outside my head, the sago lilies lurch obscene and ravishing. On the way here, I realized that I didn't know how to pronounce the word manticore, which is a mythological beast. And so I Googled it, and I came to this amazing website called Emma Sang. So it's www.emmasang.com. And as far as I can tell, it's like a delightful British child <laughs> pronouncing words. So I got stuck in a loop of just listening to words. And the background is like a hypno wheel. So you just listen to this little British girl saying words against the backdrop of a hypno wheel. It was great. Go home and do it. So, let's see. Tesserae. We were written to filter toxins. In my sleep, river monsters. In my waking, eggs tick away, heady adoration of waste. We were written without solid first principles, so time slips away. I come up to a parking lot I'm not meant to come to till tomorrow. It is very ugly here. I am shut off from speech, but the world is still loud. Winsome, the crows go sharp-mouthed. Lonesome, the horse deserves a better field. There's a train, there's a river over here, and a river over there, and I can smell the runoff. In Sala, says the woman at the desk, to stop the man from crying. Someone's carved obscenities in this bench, pussy splintering away. Rarely am I angry and not angry now, though I would love a little pearl-handled knife. We bury the ibis in a coffin shaped like an ibis, the wolf in a coffin shaped like a wolf, the ashes of the house we place inside a smaller house. I thought the sleeve was a flame. Each dusk I walk past the decaying cat. When its sharp bones are gone, what will I look on? Its eyes are docking stations. Reverie. By night, the muscles repair themselves. By day, my nerves sit on their haunches and watch and watch. I am no lunar denier, mean only that I have embarked on an era of lesser exploration, which I record in a commonplace labeled Excelsior. Today's tableau vivant, a shop across the street buying gold. Perhaps there is a doppelganger city bright with fog, moon fantasticking the droplets. Perhaps there are attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. Nothing is vouchsafed. This question is for testing whether you are a human visitor. Um, which is that account login uh, message that you often get when you create an account and you have to type the words and numbers. Um, and this one was um, after Newtown, um, the massacre, I was trying to create a, an account with whitehouse.gov so I could send the president a little letter. Um, and of course the message came up, this question is for testing whether you're a human visitor. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Just kidding. I am careful what I put in my body. I am maybe a little insurrection. You want me to type Dashaway Respia? I will. You want me to type Aloes Implover in this box? I will. I am not always sure we are human. Lars himself, Vernon Singdea. 
I drink the wine to see if my flesh is flesh. I touch my man to see if my soul vibrates. It vibrates. Bylor rage, unfortunate in Shesta, you want me to type. Amen. Lately, I am needing more quiet. My authenticated amygdala, yea, bedsiv. I came here to say enough violence. Aegis bless him. Sometimes the world is so heavy we are indeed bedsiv. Sometimes we implover like ra radium. Mr. President, the real sidles up to the unreal like a boy with a gun. Sometimes to show that I am real, I wade into the river, I let the river numb my legs, I say to the river rot lithia, and the river takes my words to the great telex misander, which is the sea. Skins. Something that's recurring throughout um, my third manuscript, which will hopefully become my third book, is this news story that I'm sure most of you probably heard about a, a swan that was poached a year or so ago. I'm not sure if it was eagle or meridian, but it was along the green belt, and it was these young boys who killed a swan, which of course is illegal. Um, and this poem is called Skins. Here is the swan splayed dead on the bed of the pickup truck, massive wings blue tinged. Odd, but I don't know enough about light to decode what I see. When people call a woman shy, they generally mean afraid, translating my quiet to a comfortable thing. The trees slough off blue skins. When the boy who had done impossible harm tied the string around my wrist, he tied the world's sorrow around my wrist. It burned like hell. I feel it still and don't know what to do. In the image, this swans a gross curvature among lawn tools. I spinster the perimeter, ruin my shoes in the river where the swan was shot by these boys on the riverbank. Our cruelties like mercury pass palm to palm. The skins of the trees pool around my feet. Rain and the river swollen beside campus where students with enhanced permission bring guns to class. I pretend the satellites are ancient to get through this grammar. Sometimes the river goes see-through. Over lunch, we discussed the loneliness of men. I ate the killed animal among the leaves. That's my cousin, y'all. <laughs> I seem obsessed with the end of the world. It's something I think about, I think, to a really unhealthy amount. And whenever the, there, there's a movie with the world ending, um, I, I'm there. So this weekend, I watched the apes, our ape overlords, take over. And it was great. I was rooting for them the whole time. So this is a kind of end of the world looking back poem, and it's the last poem in Grand and Arsenal. We looked for golden birds. We looked and looked. We issued threat advisories. Our survival kits were beautiful. Tin, tin, pocket mirrors, root foods, anodynes. We buried our seeds deep. We lined our bibs with lead. Oh, darling, we said, and rubbed a little bit. We rode our fine horses, our sad horses. We sounded the ram's horn and waited, wanted, rubbed cloves on painful gums, split the creature, crawled inside, told gorgeous lies, cataloged our footed species, example, mastodon. In burnt out churches, installed pink lights that hummed and hummed, bought water rights, visited the tombs, placed our rubbings inside spiral notebooks, stored everything we could, example, mercury, chewed mint, tooled leather with desert flowers, said leather when it was not our skin, drank from the river again, inked our wasp papery outsides, example, ohm, increasingly did not wish to be alone, said this mark means this, said this mark means, said the moon a sliver, the moon a hook, shackled men to chairs, tongued the rind, made our ponchos watertight, loved string the way it marshaled points into a line, 
were thoughtless, thought of next, rinsed, spit, pocketed, rubbed more, knew what crepe was for, how to shoe a horse, had names for everything, example, farrier, thought trees were weeds and pulled them up, screwed men in canvas tents, in brocade tents, in woolen tents, in tents so shantung no memory could hold them, sieved metal, skimmed a little off the top, said bottoms up and swallowed, leaned in real close, carded wool, etched spirals, initials, dates from one calendar or another onto metamorphic boulders, had a site called sharpening made easy, took the train, burnt blessings, wrung the loon's neck, said poor thing and would you look at that, looked at that, put the loaf on the radiator to rise, drank the yeasty smell, drifted through Aztec time, jangled keys as we traipsed through cells, through canyons, through the valley of the shadow, knelt, 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 used a rasp, a wet grinder, a Phillips head, wasted what was left, steep moss, sucked aspirin from the bark, redacted, tied boys to barbed wire with barbed wire, were proud, stuttered, example, the, 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 and so forth. Dipped the sponge in vinegar, dipped the crusts in wine, anointed every inch, set the torch alight, logged off, came close as light grew thin, squinted the world to blur, left plastic flowers by the roadsides, ate snow, combed the dog for burrs, tied knots, walked where heat fused sand to glass, forgot, did not forget, said outer space. Were kingly fools, were broke, were broken, tried to image ghosts, measured the particulates, said what does that mean and what does that, rubbed oil into our hips, hands on our hips, our hips lifted to meet our hips, we nod the world's bones clean. One more poem, last one. So there's this flower called the corpse flower. And the corpse flower is basically this massive phallus, right? Huge phallus of a flower. And it can bloom once a year. It can bloom maybe once every seven years. And there's one in the botanical garden in uh, St. Louis, the corpse flower. Um, and I used to live there for several years. So the other day, I woke to all these phone messages and Facebook messages and pictures of this giant phallic flower booming for, uh, blooming for 24 hours. And as suggested by its name, it smells absolutely horrible. But the botanical garden stays open all night, and people line up like for a couple of hours um, to see the corpse flower, because it's this amazing, bizarre thing. So this is corpse flower. June and the woman ties the blindfold around my eyes, leads me up a hill. Someone calls to tell me about the immaculate ferragamos of the dead. On the hill, the grove unseen grows wilder than the grove made visible. The bark rough as punished skin, beetles shimmying up the vascular. Thrall, not thrall, all I want is to sit in the dark and not be the film about the lady empath. Air, a message sewn into my ham, daylight brutes against my bad eye. The lady empath bleats, spoons, swoons. I woke to a message. You could smell it from the parking lot. Spadix wrapped in spathe, right, ladies? Blooms one day a year. Let wolves suck marrow from the bones of boys. Let the aspens clone themselves. I take my clothes off. The cormorants come back. A star burns out. At Meteora, monks line the old monk skulls on ledges. I slide my underwear down. Someone leaves food out for his dead, ribeye, soda, plum. The dead feast. I unhook my bra. My breasts spill out. The ceiling fan cuts heat into districts. Head on his chest. The aquifer quivers in the dark. At Stuttgart, at Basel, at Kagoshima, at St. Louis, they open up the garden long into the night, and the crowds come. Thank you all. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks so much. That was fantastic. So, Carrie, don't go too far there. So, I would love to offer a little time to actually speak to maybe some questions you have. Um, I might open it up with my own question. One of the things I said in the introduction 
is like the high and the low language and kind of gritty image with very, you know, beautiful, flowing, fantastic stuff. So speak to that if you wouldn't mind, and then you guys, please ask questions. Um, well, I think the, the high language is something that poets come to fairly naturally. Often when we're really young, it's what we think a poem is supposed to be. If you've ever taught children writing, as a lot of us, I think, in this audience have, you know that sometimes they think it needs to be flowery and quote-unquote poetic and really high language, and sometimes they sound like they were writing in the 16th century. Um, and so I think that just sort of naturally came in. And then the lower the lower language, and I think it comes from a couple of places. I'm really interested in kind of the darker aspects of our nature, and that sort of invites darker language in. And then I think a lot of it, too, um, especially in Grand and Arsenal, was informed by my four years in St. Louis. I was a visiting professor there. And it's a remarkably beautiful city, but it's a very different kind of beauty. It's a beauty of decay. Um, it's a beauty of blight in a lot of places. It's a beauty of, um, unlike our city, which is growing and growing and growing and has not yet reached its apex, it's a beauty of a city that's, you know, a hundred and some years past its apex and uh, has never quite recovered and may not recover. So, uh, other questions? I forgot there are going to be questions. Yes. <laughs> Oh, thank you for getting that. Blade Runner actually shows up in, I think, two different poems. Um, and I think the, the simplest answer, well, in one of the cases, it just seemed kind of obvious. So one of the lines from Blade Runner, Blade Runner is, God, can I find it? From the, this question is for testing whether you are a human visitor. The idea of trying to figure out if you're a man or a machine. And the first line of that poem is, um, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Who in the audience has see, seen Blade Runner? Yeah, most of us, yeah, exactly. That's like naked Rudger Hauer giving a very um, emotional speech about what humans miss out on. So it's just kind of a joke. Um, but I think the deeper answer is that when I was, when my cousin was in high school, there were certain movies that we watched obsessively over and over. Um, Blue Velvet was one of them, Harold and Maude was one of them, and Blade Runner was one of them. So I think it made kind of a, a sick, <laughs> unhealthy, um, but beautiful imprint on me at like a very young age. Yeah. Other questions? Michael? Yes. Oh no. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. The forgiveness part, I think so much of the manuscript is about kind of formulations of masculinity in our culture and how those formulations lead to violence. And so I keep looking at um, different incidences of that. And I think what I ultimately come back to is um, kind of my own, our own complicity in that because it's our culture and it's our world. So that's a poem, um, the poem, that poem about the dead swan and there's others. That's a poem that ends with, um, I ate the killed animal among the leaves, right? Which is, you know, I'm so appalled and I'm so horrified that they poached this swan and I was so furious with them, I kind of wanted to break their fingers, these little boys, whoever they are. But then when I think about it, you know, I eat birds all the time. And in my mind, I kind of think it's morally wrong. Really, I do. But I keep doing it. And so I think. Maybe if there's forgiveness, it comes from that understanding of like my complicity in this system, you know. Good question, Michael. Yes. Ah. I 
tend to do the opposite of what I tell students to do. I tell them to start with the concrete um, and go to the abstract later, if at all. But I tend to almost always start with an abstraction. Like for a while, I'll be obsessed with the idea of restlessness. I've moved a lot in my life, and I can't seem to decide whether I'm going to stay here or not. This is where I grew up, so I'll write about that. Um, or violence, you know? So the abstract idea, what I'm obsessed with comes first, and then I just tend to notice things that kind of play into that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yes? one. I mean, they haven't that much um, in terms of specific lines, and yet I see a lot of movies. And that, I mean, this is a kind of a lame answer, but it makes me wonder if there are ways in which they've influenced, because of course it's a, it's a, visual, it's a visual medium, and those movies that I mentioned, um, I guess, are kind of the aesthetic that I've developed. I mean, hopefully beautiful, but also really, 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 really dark. Like, I don't think 16-year-olds should watch Blue Velvet. Don't let your children watch Blue Velvet. It's not good for them. Um, but so, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there are, a lot of, uh, there are a lot of poets who write specifically about pop culture, and I never set out to do that, but how can, how can it not influence all of us, you know, if you're on the internet three or four hours a day? How can it not? <laughs> Any other questions? Yes. I didn't actually catch the first part. I'm, uh, so I'm a little bit OCD in real life, and so I list throughout the day, I list, and I think I have that tendency in poems, which is maybe a little bit what you're talking about. There's a lot of listing. It's something that actually reviewers um, have commented on in my work, and it's not an intentional thing. I think it's just part of my obsessive nature to do that, to sort of catalog or collect or list. Thank you all so much. I think we're going to take a break. Thank you, Christian. Thank you. Yes, thanks, Carrie, and everybody. Nicole Cullen is somebody I've known for a long time. She was a student of mine, actually, at BSU, which is really gratifying to see how well she's done after the undergrad experience at BSU. She's gone on to be a Missioner Fellow, to be a Carol Hawk Smith Fiction Fellow and a Wisconsin, at Wisconsin, and then a Stegner Fellow at Stanford, which is really, really, I don't know that there's anybody else in the history of the world probably that's done that combo. It's pretty amazing, and it's well-earned. She's someone who grew up in Salmon, Idaho, and she writes a lot about Idaho. The story she's gonna to read tonight is a longer story. She's going to cut out a little bit in the middle, sounds like, just so we can get it in in about half an hour. And Nicole, there is a lamp up here. If it gets too dark, there is that. And basically, you know, she writes so fantastically about place and about the people, kind of hard scrabble folks in very, I don't know, dubious and, you know, difficult cir circumstances in kind of our region of the world. So all of us, you know, I'm sure this time of year especially get up into the mountains and Nicole brings it brings us there for sure. Um, and I just want to say thanks for for doing as well as you do with uh, this part of the world in your writing and thanks all for coming out and Nicole Cullen.
you. Yeah. Let's clap for the light. So thanks everyone for coming out tonight and thank you Chris and Radio Boise and all the fine folks at the Modern uh, Hotel for making this happen. My husband and I recently moved to Boise about a month ago and I can't tell you how happy I am to be back in Idaho um, and being here tonight. So thanks for having me. Uh, Chris asked if I would talk a little bit about the genesis of the story and how the story came to be. Um, and this story, like most of my work, really started with place, and in this case it was both Texas and Idaho. So I wrote the first draft back in 2010, um, so it was right in the middle of the BP oil spill. And at the time I was living in Austin, but I had gone home to Salmon for the summer, and I was doing research uh, for another project at the North Fork Ranger Station when I came across two different stories. The first was a 1988 post-register article about a woman who was living and working at Longtown Lookout with her two very small children. Um, and the second was a bit of folklore about a miner named Long Tom who drowned on the Salmon River. And uh, as the story goes, Long Tom was too tall for his coffin. So uh, they ended up cutting the tendons under his knees, bending his calves over his thighs, and nailing the coffin shut. So on that note, um, I'm going to read the beginning of the story and then jump ahead and read from the middle. So thanks for listening. Long Tom Lookout. Lauren drives until she can't drive anymore. She pulls to the side of the road and a dust cloud rolls over the windshield and into the dark. It's five o'clock in the morning. The headlights flood an irrigation canal black with water, a jack fence, and the beginnings of a field. The boy sleeps in the passenger seat. He's five years old and too small to ride in the front, but Lauren is too tired to fight. He wears a bicycle helmet and her husband's old high school letterman jacket, the letter decorated with four gold track pins. Lauren places her hand on the boy's back to know he's breathing, and she thinks what she's been thinking since they left Texas, that she has no intention of being his mother. The boy's name is Jonah, but her husband calls him the boy. He calls his affair with the boy's mother the mistake. For five years, the boy was no more than a dollar amount paid in child support each month. Then last week, his mother was convicted of drug possession and child protective services showed up on Lauren's doorstep. Mr. Lyle had been contacted, the caseworker said, and he provided this address. Was Lauren not Mrs. Lyle, the boy's stepmother and legal guardian? Lauren answered with a hesitant yes, and the caseworker explained in no uncertain terms that Jonah would be otherwise placed in foster care. He had nowhere else to go. Now Lauren and the boy are in Idaho, and her husband Keller is on a skinning vessel on the Gulf of Mexico. He left Galveston six months ago to work on a commercial fishing boat out of New Orleans. In the midst of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, he's since gone to work for British Petroleum, laying oil booms off the coast of Louisiana. Lauren hasn't heard from him in weeks. She imagines Keller adrift in a rainbow of oil slick waters, separated from his paternal responsibility by nautical miles, and she thinks, perfect, we're both cleaning up someone else's mess. The last few days on the road have been an experiment in cause and effect. The boy's inability to communicate, his self-destructive behavior, his obsession with maps. In Kansas, when Lauren pried the road atlas from the boy's hands, he banged his head against the passenger window. That's when she bought him the bicycle helmet. When he wet himself in the tumult of a Colorado hailstorm, she put him in pull-ups and he's worn them every day since. She's ashamed to admit that for three days the boy has eaten only french fries, that for the last 300 miles he's been doped up on NyQuil. Wind buffets the truck and the boy stirs in his sleep. Through the dark, through her own ragged reflection, Lauren can picture the barren windswept rangeland of eastern Idaho. She can picture her younger self too, stooping to pass through the barbed wires of a fence. Years ago, Lauren's father brought Lauren and her sister Desiree to hike the route of the Gilmore-Pittsburgh Railroad, the ghost of a railroad once connecting Idaho and Montana, and she thinks back to the rare find of a buried railroad tie, the smell of wet sagebrush, her father bending to touch the pink of a bitterroot flower. That day feels so long ago she wonders if it ever happened. Nine years have passed and now she's back with $64 in cash, a truck in her husband's name, and a boy that isn't hers. Yesterday, she called her mother from a payphone in Denver, their first conversation in six years, and for once, her mother had the decency not to ask any questions. Lauren studies the boy in the wake of the interior lights. He doesn't look like her husband, but then people change. Lord, do they ever change. 
So in the next section, we learned that uh, Lauren showed up in New Orleans to leave the boy with Keller, but Keller was out on the Gulf, and another woman answered the door. Also in that scene, Lauren reconnects with an old friend named Daniel, who works as the fire dispatcher in Salmon, and Daniel's the one who gets her the job as a fire lookout for the summer. Three days of fire lookout training, how to read a map, how to use a beltweather kit, how to deploy a fire shelter. Then, first aid and lookout safety, dispatch and communications, the seven signs of hazardous fire conditions. The instructor demonstrates how to use the Osborne Firefinder, a circular map and sighting device used by lookouts to determine the directional bearing of a fire. It's not as simple as sighting a rifle, as Daniel suggested, and Lauren wonders what strings he had to pull to get her this job. The instructor says, you are the eagle's eyes. She says, it takes a certain kind of person to be a fire lookout. You must be quick and decisive. You must be patient and steadfast. And you must know how to be alone. Lauren does not know if she is any of these things, but she writes down everything the woman says. After the last day of training, the instructor hands Lauren a yellow rain slicker and a used pair of hiking boots. Sweetheart, she says, you're going to need these. On the drive home, Lauren stops at the place they call Island Park, a narrow strip of land that splits the river. The salmon has overflowed its banks, and the island is flooded in places. Grown men in lifted trucks charge deep puddles, disappear behind twin walls of water. The old public swimming pool has been converted into a skate park, and teenagers gather here to smoke cigarettes and grab ass after school. Lauren approaches, and the kids grow quiet. Hey, she says to one of the boys, you smoke? He's hesitant to answer, but reaches into his pocket, shakes a cigarette from the pack. Nearby, the picnic tables are underwater, only the top showing like a chain of docks. Lauren takes off her shoes and jumps from one table to the next until she reaches the raised pavilion. She sits and smokes, watches cars pass on the bridge above. Daniel has told her about the woman who raised her sons at the lookout, from infants to teenagers, summer after summer, and how the boys thrived in the wilderness. He said Lauren could bring Jonah no problem, but Lauren has her doubts. Surely Daniel was being kind. Surely he noticed the boy's bruised forehead, his darting eyes. Back at her mother's house, it's quiet. Hello, she calls, I'm home. The kitchen table is cluttered with game pieces, Monopoly money and battleship pegs and life station wagons. When Lauren left this morning, her mother and the boy were playing a game of memory. Her mother had altered the game. She left the cards face up and asked the boy to pick one. Then they went looking for the image on the card. Apple, watch, fish, keys. Her mother said the word and the boy said it back. Lauren picks up two red dice and rattles them in the cage of her hand. She doesn't know what bothers her more, the way the boy responds to her mother or the way her mother responds to the boy. In the living room, Lauren finds her father's tackle box emptied on the floor. Flies, spinners, jig heads, helgies, weights, bobbers. Rusted three-out hooks are snagged in the carpet. She writes the box and slides the drawers into place. When she picks it up, its weightlessness feels like something being taken away. Her father's fishing license in its plastic sleeve is wedged in the top compartment. Lauren unfolds the papers and reads the handwritten dates of every steelhead he caught in the months leading up to his death. It hurts to see so many blank spaces, to know how many fish she had left to keep. From down the hall, Lauren hears her mother's voice. She listens outside the bathroom door. That's a good boy, her mother says. Sit very still for grandma. When Lauren opens the door, her mother and the boy look up at the same time. Her mother's face is flushed, the ropes in her neck tighten. She lowers a pair of wire cutters. Lauren looks from her mother to the boy. His hand is decorated with tackle, hooks deep in the meat of his palm and fingertips. Colored fishing lures jingle and sing as he tries to get down from the counter. He doesn't seem to register the pain, but Lauren feels it acutely in her own hands, and she stands holding them out, speechless, paralyzed. Her mother says, I don't know how it happened. 30 minutes later, Lauren sits in a hospital room. They've given the boy a local anesthetic, a tetanus shot, and a small dose of Ativan, and she watches his face begin to soften. The doctor comes in and adjusts the light over the bed. He explains the process. For some, he'll insert a needle to lift the skin away from the barb and pull the hook free. For others, he'll have to push the hook through the skin, cut the barb, and back the flank out. 
Lauren lowers her eyes to the floor. She counts as the doctor drops each retrieved hook into a metal pan with a clink. Nine times, nine hooks. Afterward, the doctor says, try not to blame yourself. He hands Lauren a white bag with antibiotic ointment, extra bandages, and children's Tylenol. He says the boy will be fine, and he pats her on the back as if she too is a child who needs comforting. It's dark when she begins packing for Long Tom Lookout. She goes to the garage for a lantern and sleeping bag, but finds herself sitting on the cool concrete, breathing in the smell of oil and grass clippings. The last time she stood in this garage was the last time she saw her father. She helped him spool his fishing reel by holding a pencil to the spool center while he reeled in the line. They were, in those moments, so gently tethered by the glint of the monofilament strung between them. On her way back inside, arms full of camping gear, Lauren passes her mother on the porch swing. Can you open the door, she says, and her mother says, I just talked to Keller. He didn't even know you were here. What? You called him? I had to, to tell him about Jonah's accident. And Lauren says, did he want to talk to me? He said to call when you get back to Texas. I'm not going back to Texas. Did you tell him that? Her mother brings a tissue to her nose, and Lauren realizes she's crying. Keller's not upset about the accident, and he's not mad at you for leaving with Jonah. He's not mad at me? Lauren drops everything on the porch. The lantern rolls down the steps, breaks when it hits the sidewalk. CPS dumped his kid on my doorstep. What was I supposed to do? Sit around changing diapers while he fucked some woman? Her mother stands and opens the door. I don't know what's going on between you two, she says, but running away isn't going to fix it. The screen slams shut. Lauren collects the pieces of broken lantern, sits on the steps with the shards of glass in her hands. What did Keller see in the boy's mother, or the woman who answered the door in New Orleans? What do they have that she doesn't? She hears the woman say, no, Keller isn't home. She remembers the woman standing barefoot in the yard. Who do you think you are? The woman shouted, and Lauren had called back, we're the same fucking person, you and me, exactly the same. Lauren doesn't tell her mother goodnight. She doesn't say a word. At first light, she and the boy are in the truck, headed for Long Tom Mountain. The road to Colson Creek follows the Salmon River like a smoke plume. Lauren takes the corners fast, and the boxes in the truck bed slide from side to side. The boy closes his eyes. Pavement turns to dirt. The canyon narrows. The river runs wide and passive in sunlit stretches, then fast in body with whitewater rapids. High water season, and there are none of the usual rafters, no fishermen lining the banks. A sandhill crane bends to drink, pauses, raises its head. They pass the skeletons of mining cabins, a rusted cable car, the remains of the Moose Creek dredge. The tires hammer over washboards. When they stop at the sheep store, a log cabin that serves as a restaurant and convenience store, the boy gets out and vomits on his shoes. The cashier takes one look at him and says the bathroom is for paying customers only. Lauren counts three dollars in nickels and dimes from the glove box and buys the boy a huckleberry milkshake, cleans him up in the bathroom with the cashier scowling behind the counter. Twenty minutes later, the boy vomits huckleberry milkshake in the passenger seat. Lauren stops again. A three-hour drive becomes four. At Colson Creek, they leave the river and head up the mountain. Dust glints and flits about their heads like a million gold-winged gnats. She's long ago lost the battle of the seatbelts, and the boy rides wide-eyed and shirtless, both hands on the dashboard. Daniel has warned her about the condition of the road, and now she thinks road is a bit of a stretch. It rides like a goddamn creek bottom. Twice she stops to roll boulders from the road, watches them crash through the sagebrush below. Twice she stops to wait for bighorn sheep, slow to move and unafraid. Finally, the truck crests a rise half a mile from the summit of Long Tom Mountain. The lookout tower stands on a rocky knob like a marooned boat, a relic of the past. Lauren knows from the training course that four lookout towers have been built and rebuilt here since 1923, staffed every summer since. Yesterday, Daniel called in a favor and a forest ranger dewinterized the cab, replaced the battery in the fixed weather station, stacked a cord of wood, turned on the propane, and removed the shutters. Lightning rods rise from every corner of the roof. The windows gleam with sunlight. Lauren gets out and takes a deep breath. After nine years in Texas, it feels like she's emerged from the depths of a lake. 
She surveys the land with a hand drawn over her brow and has a sensation of driving through a long, dark tunnel and coming out the other side. From here, she can see six national forests and deep into the two million acres of the Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness. Towering granite gorges, slopes of sagebrush, dense pine and fir forest. And below, the confluence of two wild rivers like a handshake, negotiating a path to the Pacific. What do you think, Jonah, she says. Home sweet home? Lauren begins the tedious task of keeping the boy in her sights while unpacking the truck. The boy's hair is wind blown into a cowlick, his left hand bandage is soiled. He strips naked and runs between the lookout and the outhouse, wearing only a pair of white sneakers, and Lauren thinks, why the hell not? For an instant, she is struck by the boy's freedom, not just childhood, but also the unknown workings of his mind, the strange and quarantined world he lives in. Maybe, she thinks, we're not all that different. We both exist in an isolation of our own making. The lookout is furnished with a propane refrigerator and cook stove, a wood-burning stove, a long counter, and a single bed. In the middle of the room, on a table of its own, sits the Osborne firefinder and a pair of binoculars. Last year's calendar hangs on the wall, a black X drawn through every day in September. Lauren searches the cupboards and finds first aid and snake bite kits, maps, logbooks, cloud charts, mouse traps, bird seed, batteries, bug spray, an alarm clock, a single stainless steel wine glass, the firefighter's handbook, and a dog-eared copy of A River Runs Through It. Late that afternoon, after everything has been cleaned and their belongings put away, Lauren and the boy eat grilled cheese sandwiches and baked beans while dark clouds push up the Salmon River. The boy looks from side to side as Lauren closes the windows. The trees sway and creak. The bird feeder tips, spilling arcs of seed. The temperature drops 10 degrees in 10 minutes. Lauren doesn't want to miss her first radio transaction with dispatch and, with some reluctance, unpacks the beltweather kit and ventures outside in a yellow slicker to take the weather statistics. Inside, the boy sits in a cardboard box, hands over his ears. Lightning dances on distant ridge tops. Thunder rumbles overhead. Lauren comes in with a small spiral notebook in her hand, rainwater dripping from her fingers and nose. She goes to the radio. Dispatch, Long Tom Lookout. For a time, there is nothing. Then, Long Tom, Dispatch. Daniel's voice is a small comfort. She reads the wind speed and direction, precipitation, air temperature, relative humidity, and Haynes index. There is a moment after she finishes when neither speak. The radio sizzles with static. Dispatch, Long Tom, Daniel says. Do you copy? Long Tom, affirmative. Everything okay, Long Tom? We've got a storm blowing in. Copy that. Is there lightning? Affirmative. Is it close? It's getting closer. You know what to do. Turn off the propane and get off the radio. Lauren takes a deep breath to keep from crying. Daniel says, you're going to be all right, Long Tom. She wishes he would say her name. Rain lashes the windows. The boy begins to whimper. Copy, she says, clear. All night, thunderstorms pass overhead, one after another, like the ghosts of a recurring dream. Lauren wakes after midnight to the air charged with electricity, her hair on end, something like a whisper at the nape of her neck. The forest shudders into view, collapses into darkness. The boy is jolted awake by thunder. Lauren holds him on one hip, whispers one potato two under her breath. She knows to account one mile for every five seconds between flash and thunder, knows it's only getting closer. She thinks of the story the instructor told in training, how lightning once struck a chimney, coursed down the flue, jumped to the damper, and killed a lookout in his sleep. Lauren extinguishes the lantern, turns off the propane, and drags the glass insulated stool to the center of the room. She sits with her feet on the bottom rung, the boy on her lap. Together they wait. It is the waiting she knows that will kill her in the end. The hours upon hours of contemplation, of looking out the window for smoke, her thoughts leading back to Keller. She is 8,000 feet above sea level and has never felt so alone. She thinks back to their last night together and how, when he touched her hip beneath the sheets, she said, how can you want to be with me when I am so far away? All at once, the room fills with white light and the simultaneous boom of a thunderclap, the sound of an enormous whip being snapped, and she knows the lookout has been hit by lightning. The boy screams and Lauren screams. 
He wants nothing more than to escape, and she wants nothing more than to let him go. She places her hands over his ears and forces him to stay put through the worst of it. We're okay, she sings, her voice shaking. The days press forward. Cloudbirds blow out the road and cut new creek channels. Wildflowers bloom without worry. Lauren checks in with dispatch and Stormy Peak lookout twice a day. She suffers headaches from ice strain, struggles to stay away through the long northern days. It is a slow start to the fire season. Some days she listens to radio traffic if only to hear a voice that isn't hers or the echo of the boy who is taken to repeating her every word. At night, coyotes call from ridge to ridge. The sky is a graveyard of lights. She tells the boy there is a star for every ship lost at sea. Three times a week, Lauren ties one end of a rope around the boy's waist, the other around her own, and like two mountain climbers, they make their way to the spring and back. It's a three-mile round trip with Lauren hauling buckets of water and the boy tugging as he runs ahead. They bathe from a bucket of spring water warmed on the stove. So intent is the boy on examining the flecks of pyrite that shimmer and shift that he tips headfirst into the bucket, comes out spitting like a cat. Lauren stops shaving her legs, then her armpits. She wears sunscreen instead of makeup, pulls her hair into a ball cap, longs for a manicure, a grocery store, air conditioning. Five days in a row, they see the same domestic goat roping up the trail, a Nubian goat with a golden coat and a bell around its neck. It climbs the stairs of the lookout, rattles along the catwalk, bleeding at the windows. Lauren radios dispatch, and they ask a few residents along the river if anyone has lost a pet. No one claims the goat. When at last the goat wanders off, the boy says only goat for two days. How about some lunch, Jonah? Goat. Are you tired, Jonah? Goat. Finally, they go out looking for the goat. Lauren tethers it to a 20-foot rope, and it mows everything from balsam root to cheatgrass to Canada thistle around the lookout's perimeter. The boy feeds it snowberries from the palm of his hand. In the evenings, the boy studies the road atlas, turning the pages, state after state, the way another child might study a picture book. Lauren takes his finger and traces their route from Texas to Idaho by way of Louisiana. She draws a little boat in the Gulf of Mexico. That night, the boy begins tracing roadways in the Atlas. He pencils over Interstate 80 from Cheyenne to Rock Springs, the road now a silver river on the map. He lays propped on his elbows, his hand curiously steady. His hair is fine and fair as a dandelion gone to seed, so unlike her husband's, which is thick and dark. And yet they resemble each other in many ways, the boy's dominant left hand, his cleft chin, the apples of his cheeks. Lauren reaches down and touches him on the head. Other days are a fight. The boy resists eye contact and any recognition of Lauren's presence, her voice. He empties a bag of rice on the floor, feeds their cache of chocolate bars to the goat. He is taken to collecting rocks, nothing special by her eye, but to the boy they are gems, and arranging them into winding paths across the floor. If and when Lauren disrupts his roadway of rocks, the boy beats his head against the floor. He will take any map she leaves within reach. He will refuse to eat for no discernible reason. She must keep one eye on the horizon, one eye on the boy. She comes back from the outhouse and finds him flying the fire shelter like a kite. It catches an updraft, snags in a pine bough, glinting like a $300 Christmas ornament. Then it's July, bordering on hot after so many days of rain, the sun drawing slats of light across the concrete floor. Crickets sing, welcoming the heat. The boy sleeps red-faced and sweating, both arms above his head. Daniel arrives in a white Forest Service truck, a cloud of dust winding up the road. Lauren puts on deodorant and a clean shirt and helps him unload a roll of woven wire, a dozen lodgepole fence posts, and two bales of hay. I figure I better get a pen built for that goat, he says. I don't want to scare you, but I've seen what a wolf can do to a calf. Believe me, it ain't pretty. He holds up a paper bag. My wife made me bring these. I don't know if Jonah needs clothes, but I try to take out everything pink. Lauren says, he does, thank you, and thank Carol for thinking of us. They walk to the east side of the lookout where the goat works a sunflower between its teeth, root and all. The sky is stained lavender and coral and soon it will be dusk. Daniel reaches into his pocket, hands her a piece of folded paper. It's from your mother, he says. If you need to go home, I can send up a replacement. Lauren reads the message once, then a second time. 
Her mother explains in perfect cursive that Keller is coming for the boy. Lauren looks across the valley and wonders if she didn't have the boy, would Keller come for her? She remembers an afternoon they spent on South Padre Island when she and Keller were newlyweds. A surf fisherman who had hooked a seagull by mistake. The more the gull fought, the more it became entangled in the line, and soon the flock had moved down the beach without it. Eventually, the fisherman cut his line. The gull lifted, flew a few feet, and crashed back into the water. It carried on like that until Lauren couldn't watch anymore. She asked Daniel, did you read this? He looks at his shoes. We've all got our troubles. On the 3rd of July, Lauren and the boy leave Long Tom Mountain for town. Lauren's sister Desiree and brother-in-law Ted and their four children are visiting from Coeur d'Alene. They're all camped in the backyard as Ted does something he calls grilling that smells a lot like burning. They've mowed a clearing in the grass and the children have laid out a slat of plywood and an arsenal of illegal fireworks they picked up in Missoula. The two older boys light firecrackers in the chicken coop, cover their ears, and run. Desiree is eight months pregnant. She has named her children after places she has never been, Branson, Lincoln, Trenton, and Madison. Lauren suggests Houston as a joke, and Desiree says it with different middle names, Houston Lee, Houston Hope, Houston Marie. No one says Keller's name, but Ted puts an extra burger on the grill. The women share looks of anticipation, simultaneously turning when a car door slams. After dinner, the children scatter, playing a game of hide-and-seek. The yard backs up to a calm stretch of river, but to either side, the property is littered with junk cars, tires, broken bee boxes, a shed, and a chicken coop. They are waiting for true dark, for fireworks to pop and explode over Old Dump Hill. Desiree props her swollen feet on a stump. Lauren's mother brings out a transistor radio and tunes into the only station in town, and they listen to songs with America in the title. Ted struggles with the campfire, eventually dousing logs with lighter fluid and throwing in a match. Desiree raises her hand to the flame, says, Lordy, Ted, you trying to burn the place down? The boy darts across the yard in a red sweatshirt with Rodeo Princess, spelled in rhinestone studs, a hand-me-down from Daniel's daughter. Lauren knows he isn't playing along so much as hiding from the other children, and she's surprised when Madison, Desiree's youngest, takes him by the hand. They crawl into an old drift boat, Lauren's father's boat, now overgrown with skeleton weed. Their small heads peek above the bow, and in that moment, Lauren's life carries a semblance of normalcy. A calm before the storm, she thinks, before she loses Keller to the boy and the boy to Keller. No, she thinks, they were never mine in the first place. Ted retrieves a beer from the cooler and hands it to Lauren. So your mother tells us you've been working at a, long, at a lookout tower. Long John, Long Tom, Lauren says. It was named after a miner that drowned. Desiree shudders. I think I drowned in a previous life. That's why I'm scared of water. Ted doesn't believe in past lives, do you, Ted? It's fire that scares me, Ted says. Burning to death. Actually, Lauren says, the miner's real name was Joe Lockland. They packed his body upriver and ordered a coffin from town, but when it arrived, it was too short. A child's coffin, Desiree says. Oh, that's the worst. Remember the time we caught all those baby moles and put them in a shoebox and they died in the night? Remember Lauren? And Daddy held a funeral in the backyard. Oh, bless his heart. No, not a child's coffin. It's just that Tom was too long. Long Tom, Ted says. He looks to Desiree. Get it, honey? I get it, Desiree says. Why wouldn't I get it? Lauren makes slits of her eyes. It's after nine o'clock and twilight lingers. She scans the yard, searching for the boy's red sweatshirt. The children are hiding. It's eerily quiet. She thinks it's too late for them to play so close to the river. Ted says, so what'd they do with the body? Lauren stands, both hands on her hips. They cut the tendons under the dead man's knees, bent his calves over his thighs, and nailed the coffin shut. Desiree gasps. Their mother says, that's a terrible story, just awful. Lauren doesn't see the boy anywhere. She walks into the yard. Trenton and Madison appear from behind a pile of tractor tires. Trenton holds Madison's hands behind her back like a caught criminal. The other two boys wait for the game to begin again. Lauren nearly yells when she says, where's Jonah? The children look at Lauren and then each other. Madison points, he's in the tires, she says. He won, Jonah won the game. The adults clap and cheer. 
The boy who runs out from behind the tires keeps running across the yard, and Lauren chases after him, pretending he's too fast. After everyone has gone to bed, Lauren turns on the television for any news about skimming vessels off the coast of Louisiana. It's day 73 of the Deepwater Horizon oil disaster. Over 140 million gallons of crude oil along 423 miles of coastline. Cleanup workers in Louisiana have reported symptoms from exposure to oil chemicals. CNN loops images of ruined beaches. There's a message drawn in the sand, spill, baby spill. Last week, a charter boat captain in Alabama put a gun to his head and pulled the trigger. Lauren begins to worry. Four days ago, Hurricane Alex forced boats to port in the Gulf of Mexico. Four days ago, Keller called Lauren's mother, but nobody's heard from him since. For the first time, Lauren admits that leaving Keller wasn't so much about leaving, but wanting him to acknowledge her absence, and now she feels like a child. She doesn't know if Keller is traveling by car or by plane and then by car. The closest airports, Idaho Falls and Missoula, are both three hours away. Her mother gets up for a glass of water and says what Lauren is thinking. What if something happened? Lauren steals a pack of cigarettes from Ted's coat pocket, smokes pacing the dark garage. She raises the glowing ember to her father's ghost and says, would you look at us now? Then she does what she promised herself she wouldn't do. She calls Keller. His voice sounds small and far away. Where are you, she asks. Lori? A pause. He clears his throat. I'm in New Orleans. Where are you? Lauren cups her hand around the phone and yells in a whisper, I'm in Idaho at my goddamn mother's with your son, which you know perfectly well. She can hear Keller breathing, wheezing. He discharges the inhaler, takes a deep breath. His asthma has worsened over the years, and it's easier to imagine him on the deck of a trawler clutching his chest than as a high school athlete setting pole vault records. Are you okay, she says. My mother said you were coming. I said I would try, and I am. They've got us working 14-hour days. Someone has to pay the rent while you're on vacation. Vacation? Is that what you think this is? No one told you to go to Idaho. I mean, really, what were you thinking? Keller's voice fluctuates with his movements, and she imagines him stepping into his jeans. She wonders how many women have seen him do this. Sometimes he touches her in a familiar way, other times as if he's trying to please another woman. Lauren doesn't know if this other woman is a younger version of herself, the person he still believes her to be, or someone she's never met. I drove to New Orleans, Keller. I know. Margo said some crazy woman took off in my truck. You're lucky she didn't call the police and report it stolen. Is that her name? Margo? She's Doug's wife. Doug and I work together. I rent the guest bedroom. Do you really expect me to believe that? Come on, Lori. Don't do this. I thought you were staying with your parents. Why would you lie to me? Why did that woman, Margot, look at me like I was the other woman? Christ, Keller says. Is that what this is about? Lauren slumps against the counter. She doesn't know what to believe. Hello? Lori? When are you coming back? I'm not coming back. Come get your son. Lauren hangs up the phone. Her mother appears at the end of the hallway. Lauren says, he's not coming. She gathers the sleeping boy in her arms and carries him to the truck. Her mother follows in her housecoat and slippers, asking Lauren to leave Jonah. What if Keller comes for him, she says. What am I supposed to tell him? Lauren starts the engine. Tell him he can come to me. But Lauren, her mother says, this isn't about you. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody, and thank you, Nicole. That was amazing. And what I didn't mention before, I didn't want to wait till the end to bring it up, but that story is actually going to be in the Best American Short Stories this year, 2014. Like I said before, it was published in the Idaho Review last year, and that process is like amazingly difficult and selective. You know, it, it's 20 stories every year are chosen as the Best American Short Stories out of probably thousands and Jennifer Egan was the guest editor and judge 
um, who chose this story, and she's a Pulitzer Prize winner and one of my favorite writers, and I know many of you in the audience know her work, and so it's, it's amazing kudos that Nicole's story rose to the top and that the Idaho Review was willing to publish it and work with it and edit it, and it's such a long process to um, you know, get a story from its genesis, like Nicole said, of place, to uh, where it actually, you know, ends up in the magazine, and then it ends up being sort of up the rung, you know, all the way to the best American short stories, which is, yes. So that'll be out. I think that usually comes out in about September. I always buy it around Christmas time, so it's one of those things that uh, I hate to say it. I'm super jealous. It's like, well, you know, it's one of those things. Like the, it's the the high mark. That and the O. Henry Awards and the Pushcart Prizes um, for short fiction is, yeah, the pinnacle. So that's super impressive. And thanks so much for reading. I, she read all the way up to a kind of tipping point for the story there. So what you should do is actually buy the Idaho Review and read the rest of the story where there's actually some stuff that actually, you know, gets a little bit, uh, a little darker, a little weirder, a little more, I don't know. Ah, that place that we love to go, I suppose, in literary fiction that's a little disturbing, I suppose. So pick that up if you like, and I, you know, she'll sign the book and, or the, the, the review and uh, chat about the, the place and the story. And yeah, I mean, a fantastic turnout. I want to thank The Modern once again. I want to say this too, Michael and Paul, I wanted me to talk about a film festival or in-room film festival that The Modern is doing. It's called 39 Rooms because there are 39 rooms here. And they are taking submissions for short films um, from around the world. So if you know anybody or if you make short films yourself, the submission process is where you go to their website, The Modern Hotel and Bar, and you can link up to getting your film involved. They will figure out if it's good enough. And they pick 10, I think, pretty much, that will run the entire year. And then they'll have a new process the following year. So, um, so. Film people do that. I uh, will make one quick announcement. It's a, kind of a little bit of a self-promotion thing, which I'm not that comfortable with. But there is a great, it should be fun. Hopefully the book stuff will be fine. But at least the, the beer will be good. The food will be good. It'll be at, uh, I'm doing a book launch party for Naked Me, a new collection of short stories that I have coming out in this month, which is cool. Yay. Thank you. And um, it's exciting. And also, yeah, the party's going to be at uh, Payette Brewing on the 25th. Um, which is a Friday night. There'll be St. Lawrence Gridiron food there. There'll be paid beer. There'll be a DJ. There will be possible break dancing going on, you know. And uh, there'll be a, a, a reading, too, but won't go on too long. But we'll have books for sale through Rediscover there, too, so that'll be great. And it seemed like there was something else I was going to bring up, but I'm not thinking of. But, oh, I want to thank uh, Sarah from Iconoclast Books, who's here in the audience. If you guys go up to catch them, where is she? She's somewhere, but... Fantastic bookstore that is, you know, has been sort of helped out and is going on into the, you know, the far and distant future. So I'll be doing a reading up there too in, in August, and I know Tony Dore is going to be up there this next week, I believe. So Tuesday, all right, Tuesday, Anthony Dore reading from his fantastic book, um, All the Light We Cannot See, and la la la, all that good stuff. So fantastic crowd tonight, you guys. Remy and the crew, thanks so much. Modern folks. Boise Radio, Modern Campfire Stories. Have a great night, and uh, we'll see you next month. This has been Campfire Stories, recorded live from the Modern Hotel and produced by Radio Boise. Thanks for listening. <laughs>